Pope John Paul II, who just died in 2005, was the 110th Pope. No wonder interest in the prophecies of St. Malachi are reviving right now. When the cardinals came to Rome to elect the 111th Pope, an article appeared out of India the day before the election. A man said to the cardinals, you must elect a giant spiritual leader. You must elect a pope that can appeal to young people. You must elect someone that can hold the church together. But he said, there's one more thing you must pay attention to when you elect the new pope tomorrow in the Sistine Chapel. Make sure you don't elect a pope that has anything to do with the olive because the clue for the 111th pope was the glory of the olive, whatever that means. When the identity of the Pope was disclosed, it was Cardinal Ratzinger of Germany. Well, the announcement was made the next day that the Pope would rule under the name of Benedict XVI. Saint Benedict was the patron saint of Europe. He was a very powerful man and he gave birth to a powerful order called the Benedictine Order. The symbol of the Benedictine Order is the olive. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons. Hey everybody, welcome once again to Canary Cry Radio. Thanks for tuning in this week. Uh, it's been an exciting week with the Olympics going on and all sorts of things. My name is Basil. And I'm Gons. And um, we have a very special guest on today. We have Chris Putnam. He runs a website called Logos Apologia. And uh, Chris has a Master's of Arts degree in Theological Studies and a Bachelor of Science in Religion and Mathematics. And he's a member of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and the Tau Sigma National Honor Society. And uh, he, uh, again, runs the website logosapologia.org. And uh, the goal there for his website is to show that logic, science, history, and faith are complementary, not contradictory, and to bring that life-changing truth to everyone who wants to know. And most recently, he wrote a book with Tom Horn called Petros Romanos, The Final Pope is Here. So we're so grateful and excited to have Chris on. How you doing, Chris? Hey, it's great to be on the show with you guys. Let's just jump in. Um, we wanted to uh, bring something up that's fairly uh, recent, this Vatty Leaks thing that um, Tom Horn uh, talked about on his website, The Raiders News. What's that all about? Well, yeah, if you look in the, uh, you know, on the internet and the press right now, especially coming out of Italy, there's a, a huge scandal going on involving the Vatican. Apparently, the, the Pope's butler uh, leaked a whole bunch of confidential documents to uh, – an investigative journalist named Newsy. And Newsy wrote a book uh, called His Holiness, basically about the, uh, the pontificate of Benedict XVI. And uh, in this book, he kind of talks about a lot of corruption, mostly financial issues. Um, and it's really throwing the, uh, the whole system into uh, an uproar over there right now. And it's the kind of thing that one would expect, you know, when we have an election here in the United States, you see all this mudslinging going on between the candidates, always trying to discredit each other. So it really looks like what we're seeing is a, um, 
as an attempt to influence a future uh, a future conclave, and which really has a lot of uh, implications to what our book is about. Because in our book, we, you know, we talk about the, the you know prediction of the final pope, which you know many scholars, uh, well, one in particular wrote in 1950 that he expected it would happen in the year 2012, and that's all very interesting when we see these charges being leveled uh, right now this year. In Rome, and it really looks like a lot of uh, backbiting and uh, manipulation in anticipation of a papal election. Right now, uh, it seems that you know corruption and sort of you know financial dishonesty and things like that are, I mean, at least in some circles, um, expected out of the Vatican. Uh, you know, there's a lot of distrust there. Um, but what? <clears throat> what specifically is uh, happening with the money that uh, you know we should know about? Well, the thing that I find the most disturbing is that they're talking about a lot of misappropriation of funds. So you have to understand that the Vatican is actually a political entity, and this is one of the main arguments that I make in the book that. Uh, you know, the church, Jesus kind of, when you read the New Testament, you see a composite worldview. When I, when I say composite worldview, I mean that, you know, there's two kinds of people basically in the New Testament. There's believers and there's unbelievers. And, and there's really no in-between as far as the gospel goes. And uh, But the church was never put here to force people to, to become Christians. And, um, you know, it, Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. You know, he, when, he, when Peter cut the guy's ear off when, when they tried to arrest Jesus, he, Jesus picked the guy's ear up and healed him and told Peter that, you know, he who, who lives by the sword will die by the sword. My kingdom's not of this world. You know, I don't want you to fight for me in this way. Um, you know, and you think about Satan's temptation of Jesus in the desert with all the kingdoms of the world. He was trying to to get him to take a shortcut to his kingdom. You know, and so really the kingdom of God is on earth now, but it's in a spiritual sense. And it's really not going to become a physical temporal reality until the return of Christ. But if you look at what happened with Rome and the Catholic Church, they really took that deal. They, they really tried to become a temporal kingdom on the earth without Christ on their own account, by their own means. And they did this by the sword. And uh, they're still trying to do that, and they're they're basically their own little sovereign country there. So they have their own financial system, their own politics, and all that. Um, now they were a big country for a while. Napoleon kind of conquered them and and cured them of of that for a little while. But then they made a deal with uh, with the fascists, really. And uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century, they got their some of their land back. So now they're like probably the smallest country in the world. But they actually have UN representatives and all that. But the thing that's really disturbing about this financial thing is, so you have, you know, probably millions of Catholics that donate money to Catholic charities, you know, expecting it to go to help the poor and things like that. Well, it, according to the documents that, uh, this investigative journalist, Newsy, who has written a book, um, according to the documents that he has, it looks like they, they, they've pretty freely moved the money around and appropriated it for other purposes. So in other words, when you think about the pedophile scandal that has been plaguing the Catholic Church, um, there's plenty of evidence that they've been covering up 
for these pedophile priests and, you know, paying off the victims and then moving the priest to a different area. And oftentimes the, the same crime is repeated. So, you know, they're giving out millions and millions of dollars in hush money to keep the victims quiet. So there's a really good chance if you've donated money to a Catholic charity that it ended up paying off the victim of pedophilia to protect the pedophile. So, I mean, in a very real way, um, you know, well-meaning people donating money to this church could end up uh, promoting pedophilia, which is a really a horrible thing. Right. Yeah. No, that is uh, that's uh, pretty horrific when you when you think about the especially the spirit in which that money is given to the church and sort of charity or whatnot, and then ends up, uh, you know, being flipped around and used for uh, some pretty terrible terrible uh, purposes there now vaddy leaks um is sort of the uh website sort of like the WikiLeaks, only for the vatican there now uh, so you guys can check that out we'll post it in the uh show notes there um guns what are you thinking well i i wanted to kind of introduce the book a little bit clearer for people that may not have heard about it can you give us a a general overview of what the book Petros Romanos, The Final Pope is Here, what it's about, and what prompted you to write it? Well, certainly. Um, you know, I had had a relationship with Tom Horn in the past. Uh, I had, He actually published a uh, paper I wrote in seminary on the subject of transhumanism in a book called Pandemonium's Engine. I kind of took to task uh, some Christian theologians who were actually promoting transhumanism as something that um, was a God-given mandate that we evolve uh, through that process. And so I, Tom had published that for, uh, work of mine, and we kind of had an email relationship. He, he would link to a lot of my articles at my website, lagosapologia.org. And um, we had, you know, we both kind of are of the opinion that the biblical prophecies are nearing their ultimate fruition. Uh, I, I do think that um, the time of Jesus' return is, is very close. I, I don't claim to have any absolute knowledge of that, but um, the way that I read the prophecies in the Bible, I think that we can see the signs around them. I think the, the Reformation of Israel, 1948, is significant. Um, I do tend to follow the, the dispensational view um, it, loosely. I, I'm not a hardcore dispensationalist, but I think that, that, that Israel is significant, and uh, I'm not willing to, uh, to go into the replacement theology camp. Um, but uh, so Tom and I have this, you know, shared eschatological worldview, and we kind of keep our eyes on prophecy. And he had mentioned this prophecy of the popes by Saint Malachi in his book Apollyon Rising, two thousand twelve, right. really briefly. And we were both kind of looking at that thing, and you know, just in an email discussion, thought it was pretty remarkable that. We, you know, of this prophecy, it it actually predicts that the end times would ensue in, under the reign of the very next pope, um, and nobody is really writing about it. So we decided that we were going to look into it, and uh, we ended up deciding to write this book, Petrus Romanus, and, and the title of the book is really taken from the Latin of that prophecy, who says that the the last pope will be Peter the Roman, and that's what it means. Right. Yeah. So well, if you I like. Oh, you want to just talk about what the prophecy of the popes is, or yeah, well, yeah. Before we jump in uh, to that aspect, I just wanted to make sure that our, that our listeners understand that we're not, or you guys aren't saying that the the prophecies that the popes have 
are bigger or more accurate or anything than uh, God's prophecies in the Bible. In fact, I think you guys do a very good job of at least uh, showing the caution of like, hey, we're not saying that we know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, you guys talk about how you know some of the, the prophecies could be forged uh, and things like that. I think you guys do a great job with that. And one of the points that really stood out to me was um, the fact that we have to be cautious to agree with the prophecies of the Pope, but we have to keep also keep in mind that biblically, people like Nebuchadnezzar and Balak and or Balaam, who were not people that were of God, were given prophecies, you know, of things that were going to occur in the future. Right. Um, so, can you harp on that just a bit, just a bit, just so before we can uh, jump in, so people know and understand that, you know, we're not saying that this Catholic prophecy is above the Word of God. No, not at all. In fact, I mean, the the, the principal interest, you know, for Tom and myself is that. It seems to match up to uh, biblical prophecy in some surprising ways, and so that's really was our jumping-off point. You know, is that it seems to be suggestive that the events in the Book of Revelation, specifically chapter seventeen, it really does uh, seem to match that. And so, it's at, at the minimum, it's suggestive of those events, and we'll, we'll get into that shortly. But I mean, you know, what you said is is an argument that that I used on myself basically when I was started looking at this prophecy when Tom and I decided to investigate this, you know, my my first instinct as a Protestant was, you know, this isn't a biblical prophecy. You know, you shouldn't trust this. And, you know, you think about in Deuteronomy where, you know, under the Mosaic covenant that if a prophet, you know, missed one time, then he was stoned. Um, but, you know, one thing that, that you'll discover in the New Testament is that, uh, Paul talks about in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, if you look at like verse 19 forward, he talks about don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecy, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Exactly. And now that that's interesting because, you know, test everything and hold fast to what is good. That seems to, to infer that there's such a thing as imperfect prophecy in the New Testament paradigm. Um, you know, you, if, it, if it was completely perfect, you wouldn't have to test it and only hold the good part, you know. So right. it seems to me that, you know, if you look at some of the instances in the book of Acts where, uh, you know, they predicted that Paul was going to be arrested and, and you know, Paul just ignored it and went ahead and did it and he did get arrested. But I mean, so it was a true prophecy, but he didn't necessarily follow it. There, there seems to be some, you know, there, it's a difference than what you see in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Covenant. You know, the role of a prophet in the Old Testament was quite different. They literally spoke for God to the covenant people of Israel. And, you know, that's a little different than what we see with prophecy in a New Testament uh, paradigm. It's more, um, it's a more loose thing. I mean, yeah, I think even a, like a pastor that preaches is actually standing in the role of a prophet. So, you know, prophecy after, after Christ in the New Covenant is a different paradigm. Um, so there, there is room for uh, somewhat imperfect prophecies. Now, I don't know, you know, where Malachi fits. I don't know if if this was a, a divinely inspired prophecy or, or what's going on exactly. I suspect that it, it might be. Like you said, um, we we do see prophecy coming from strange sources, like the, the Star of Bethlehem, 
was prophesied by by Balaam, who was right. a sorcerer, right? And right. he was an enemy of Israel. So we do see it coming from strange sources. So really what I think the, the thing to do is to test it and to hold fast to what is good. And so, you know, that's kind of where I started from, you know, with the idea that I can't rule it out just based on the source. Right. Okay, well, let's jump into the prophecies if you want to go through them and give us some of the uh, some of the more compelling things that have been fulfilled and leading right up to where we are currently. Okay, well, you know, the the, the main thing, to, to, I guess, to start with is it's, it's so interesting about this prophecy is that, you know, basically the way the story goes, this uh, Malachi Morgare made a pilgrimage to Rome in 1139 A.D., where he had a vision of 112 popes up until the end of time, basically the, the return of Christ, the tribulation. And so... 112 popes into the future from 1139. And the thing that's you know so compelling about this and why we can title our book, The Final Pope is Here, is that we're at number 111 on the list. So you know this list of 112, we're at the next to the last one. Right. Now, the way the prophecy works is a, it's a little odd. I mean, they're like these little short Latin phrases and they correspond to something about the pope. Um, it could be his name. It could have something to do with his coat of arms, which they call heraldry. It could be something to do with an event that happens during his papacy. So there, it, it's a little vague. And I think a, you know, a good criticism of this is that it does not necessarily have a precise referent. So it's kind of open to the charge that you can kind of go hunting around for something to make it match. And I think that's a valid criticism. Um, the thing is, is that it, there's some of them that, that are so compelling that 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 criticism doesn't really um, completely dismiss this thing, but um, and we'll look at why I, why I'm saying that in a minute. But you know, the, the first one, the, the first thing I think that your listeners should understand is this last prophecy, the one that is predicted for the last pope. Um, it's not a short little phrase; it's a little paragraph. And here's the English translation of what is predicted under the reign of the very next pope says, in the extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will sit Peter the Roman who will nourish the sheep in many tribulations. When they are finished, the city of seven hills will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge his people. The end. Now, that's not very vague. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, a couple things jump out at you right away. It's talking about the extreme persecution of the church. Uh, you know, then this this character, Peter the Roman, that's Petrus Romanus. That's where the book title comes from. So he's nourishing the sheep in many tribulations. And that, so that kind of jumps out at you. The city of seven hills is destroyed. Now, that's a really transparent reference to Rome. Um, and the dreadful judge will judge his people. So this really sounds like... You know, the Great Tribulation, the return of Christ. And, you know, the city of Seven Hills being destroyed is really compelling because um, if you think about it, there's a thing called the principle of embarrassment. And, and what that, that means is when you're judging the testimony that someone gives, uh, when, when someone testifies in a way that's not flattering to themselves, that's usually an indication that it's, uh, it's, it's genuine. People don't usually make things up against their own interest. Um, so, you know, when you have a Catholic source prophesying the destruction of Rome and the judgment of Rome, that, that tends to, to make it seem authentic. Right. Um, 
Now, what really jumps out to me as someone who really studies the biblical prophecies, I mean, I believe the Bible prophecies. You know, this thing can, you know, I, it either falls or, or goes away on its own merit. And, you know, I'm not married to this prophecy of the popes, but I just think it's suggestive, mainly because you see the city of seven hills being destroyed is prophesied there. Now, if you look in Revelation chapter 17, it talks about mystery Babylon the Great, the great harlot. Right. And, you know, commentators have seen this as an apostate religious system. And, you know, countless people have matched this up to the Roman Catholic Church. So I'm nowhere near the first person to see that. Um, and I don't necessarily think that they're the entirety of that uh, woman that rides the beast. But I think that they're the leading component of it for several reasons. Mm. Um, but right off the bat, if you look into Revelation 17, verse 9... You know, he's talking about the woman is riding this seven-headed beast. And it says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. So there's another there's another reference that matches, you know, the city of seven hills. You know, the seven heads are seven mountains on which she right. sitteth. Now, at the end of that chapter, you see that the woman is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now... You know, the way that you really can interpret the Bible, the best hermeneutic is to try to defer to the author's intention. So when John wrote the book of Revelation in A.D. 90 or so, there really wasn't any other city that was a, a good competitor for having dominion over the kings of the earth. This was at the height of the Roman Empire. So really, I mean, Rome was the city that had dominion over the kings of the earth. So I think it's pretty clear when you see the, the seven heads or seven mountains and it's the city that has dominion over the kings of the earth in AD 90 that, that he's talking about Rome as this woman. So, you know, it's pretty unanimously agreed by, by biblical scholars that, that he's talking about Rome there. Um, there's, there's some dissent, but I, you know, I don't really take it too seriously just because of those references. I mean, if you, even if you look in the Catholic encyclopedia, it'll, uh, It'll, rec it'll acknowledge that Rome is classically known as the city of seven hills. So right. here you have a Catholic prophecy predicting, and it, it really seems to, to match Rome up to Mystery Babylon, to, to the great harlot. You know, this Malachi right. prophecy does, you know, it, the inference is, is that they're one and the same. And, of course, the city of seven hills gets judged in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, you know, it's this system is destroyed, and the Jesus does return and judge the people. Right. So, so this prophecy of the popes really does seem to coincide quite neatly with the Book of Revelation. And so that's the thing that's so compelling, right there. So now we ask ourselves: Is there any reason to think that it's a real that it, you know it really is predicting the future? And you know that's where you can go in and start examining the evidence. Right. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, if you go and read about this thing on the Internet and read the Wikipedia article and other things, you're going to see that, that quite a few people have called it a forgery. And, and there are good reasons for that. Um, the, the beginning portion of it between, you know, like I said, it, it's allegedly given in 1139, but we don't really have a copy in print that, you know, is widely acknowledged. And then you can look at it and examine until 1595. OK, so there's a, a big gap in time, you know, like 400 something years where this thing is missing. Um, and so, you know, that that brings a lot of things into question. 
And, and what I discovered is that it really does look like somebody probably uh, manipulated the early part of the prophecy. And, uh, you know, it, and there's several reasons for that. The most obvious is that there was a book, a papal history, that was published in 1550, something like that. And mm -hmm. it, it was a papal history, and it was really like the authoritative book on the popes at that time. It was by a scholar named Panvinius. Now, the Malachi prophecy... Seemingly, it, it matches the coat of arms in the early part, in the, that early portion before it was published, really, really, like, kind of astonishingly accurately. It describes no. the coat of arms. And it what does also, that mean? Um, like, you know, the coat of arms are the symbols that the popes would, ha would adopt. You know, what I, you know what I'm talking about? They'll right. have... Right. So the prophecy will say something that seems to match the, the emblem on the coat of arms almost exactly in the beginning part of it. Well, the problem is quotes as it goes down the line. Right. Well, it, the thing is, Panvinius's book, The Papal History, he made some mistakes where he actually got the coat of arms mixed up with a couple of popes. And the thing that's funny is if you look at the beginning part of the Malachi prophecy, it makes the same mistakes as his book. So that's a dead giveaway that somebody <laughs> copied his book. Um, so what we think happened is that there really was this real text of this prophecy, but someone got hold of it and kind of modified it to make it look better than it was in the beginning because they were trying to get a particular candidate elected pope. And But what that doesn't explain is that after it's in print in 1595, um, it kind of takes on a different flavor but some of the more recent uh, predictions are actually more, more compelling than those ones that matched that. And so that's really, you know, I think what the argument is that I'm presenting is that, yeah, you know, someone did monkey around with it. And it, the, the early part of it is a forgery. But so th I think there's two layers of context. I think you had an original prophecy. I think it might have been given by Malachi. It might have been somebody else. I you know, it's really hard to know because it, it was missing for so many years there. Right. But, um, yeah, I think what happened is somebody got a hold of this document and then they, they altered the part that they were interested in. You know, so that, there was probably a papal election around 1590 or something like that. I'm not sure. But, I mean, there's different arguments about that. But, I mean, Rene Thibault, a Jesuit that I, who wrote a book on this that I discovered, he thought that the accurate part, the part that hadn't been changed, began in the year 1571. So he thought the original context was 1571 to 1595. Um, there do seem to be some people that mentioned this thing in some early books in 1557 and 1570. So based on that, I, I just kind of will allow that maybe from 1571 to 1595 is the original context. But the thing that it's um, it's not disputed by anybody is that it's in print um, and, you know, in solid in 1595. So you can't argue right. that the ones after 1595 that someone changed it after the fact. So that right. kind of... Well, what about... That I, I mean, just as a, I think the curious listener would, would want to know is how, how, how do we know that it's not the prophecies are being used, you know, since the late 1500s to actually, you know, make it look like a self-fulfilling prophecy where they're actually trying to make the popes fit the description of what the prophecies already describe. Well, you know, I think that happens. I, I, I acknowledge that. I think that's part of it, but it doesn't explain all of it. Okay. So let's take a look at, I mean, the, the big one that I, that I've been talking about a lot, the, this is the one that really made me, um, 
stand up and take notice of this prophecy. Now, um, you know, like I said, it's these list of Latin phrases, cross of Romulus, flower of flowers, glory of the olive. You know, so it's all these little phrases. Um, but the one that fell in order for Benedict XV was religio depopulata. And that just means religion depopulated. Okay, now this is a little uh, different kind of prediction because you know if you think about the way a scientist would test a scientific theory, like when he has a hypothesis, he designs an experiment that tries to falsify it. So the way you test a hypothesis is you try to make a risky prediction where if it doesn't you know, work out, then your hypothesis is falsified. You try to disprove it. Right. So these predictions, this is really one of the only ones that it's probably one of the most obvious ones that makes a risky prediction. Um, because if you think about it, you know, you would expect the church, probably all things being equal to just kind of stay the same. You know, you wouldn't expect a lot of growth or a lot of, or a lot of losses, you know, in general time, things just kind of go along. But I mean, this, it could have, you know, been a time when the church had grown, there could have been a revival in the church or something like right. that. But, you know, but it's saying religion depopulated. So this is kind of going out on a limb and making a risky prediction. And you wouldn't expect that to happen, all things being equal. Well, you know, this is the time that the Roman Catholic Church probably lost more people than any other time in history because it, this was the, it fell during the reign of Benedict XV, who was Pope from 1914 to 1922. Um, you have World War One. It's absolutely devastating to, to Europe and to the Catholic Church. To add insult to injury, you have the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Uh, scholars think that probably 200 million people left the church to, wow. to join the Communist Party. Um, the ones that didn't leave the church, you know, you have Stalin and Lenin specifically targeting religious leaders because, you know, people that are have their allegiance to something bigger than the state are, you know, are, are a danger to the state. So the right. Communist Party. You know, they threw them in the gulags and um, and persecuted them mercilessly. So you have Stalin is credited with killing probably 43 million people. And it all started right at this time when this uh, prophecy that, you know, is in print in 1595, allegedly from 1139, you know, it predicted religion depopulated. And, wow, you know, it's really heavily depopulated during this time. And that prophecy alone uh, makes you take notice. Yeah, it is pretty compelling. Um, now, you, you sort of talked about how these um, predictions or the prophecies about the popes are sort of, you know, I don't know, coded or cryptic or sort of vague. Um, why do you think that was? What do, you, do you think there's any significance to that? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, prophecy is strange. I mean, think about right. it. Think about in the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? He has a dream of a statue, you know, with a head of gold. Right. You know, so you, you get, you know, you wouldn't expect that to be kingdoms, right? I mean, it, it's right. dreams and, and imagery of, you know, apocalyptic imagery are very strange. I mean, look at the book of Revelation in Daniel where it talks about these beasts with seven heads and <laughs> yeah. prophecy is weird. Right. <laughs> well, that was one thing that kind of stuck out to me is they, they kind of sound like prophecies. You know, you'd think if, if something was uh, fake or, you know, it, it would be a little bit more straightforward. And these are just, you know, a lot of times like prophecies are, they need um, translation. Yeah, yeah. Interpretation. Exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's, you look at the, the, the dreams in the Bible. I mean, there's several instances where, you know, people that are hostile to, to the Jews or to, to the, the biblical prophets have real prophecies. Like we talked like, you know, Pharaoh had a dream with the skinny cows that, you know, predicted the famine that Joseph was able to interpret that dream. And that's what brought, you know, the Jews to Egypt where they built up into a nation and then, you know, Moses freedom. So the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar, you have this hostile Babylonian king that has a dream about all the kingdoms up to the return of Christ. And, um, you know, so, you know, prophecy is weird. Think about like this one. So you look at some of these other prophecies, you know, that the one that I I just gave you, I would say, was the gold standard. That's the one that really stands out. And you go, wow, I just can't really debunk that, you know? Right, right. Uh, but like some of the other ones are a little more vague, but they're they're still kind of interesting. Like I said, a lot of them speak to the coat of arms. Um, and, you know, I, I, I examined that whole thing because you think about it, you know, my first thought was, so maybe these popes just pick their coat of arms to match what they see as the next prophecy on the list. You know, right. that would be a good way maybe to get yourself elected pope. Well, it turns out that most of them um, become, there's actually rules in Roman Catholicism where you have to uh, pick your coat of arms when you're made a bishop. And, you know, I examined, you know, when the history of these guys, a lot of them become bishop 30 or 40 years before they're ever elected pope. So it would be really hard to anticipate when the Pope ahead of you is going to die or leave office and, and get it right. Because, I mean, it could be two or three guys in between you and the time that you got to, you know, to be electable. Mm. So it doesn't seem likely to me that, that that's what's going on. So you see ones like Paul VI, who was Pope in 1963. The Latin phrase is flos florum. And that just means flower of flowers. Right. On his coat of arms... It's, it's got three fleur-de-lis, which is the symbol of the French monarchy. And uh, it's really interesting. That's just picks, you know, fleur-de-lis literally means flower of the lily. And so this motto that fell on his papacy, flower of flowers, it, it, it's a pretty accurate description of his coat of arms. Um, so you see those kind of pr predictions. But then you see other ones that are even stranger and, and seem to be supernatural. Um, John Paul I who was Pope in 1978 for only 33 days. And uh, he died mysteriously. A lot of people think he was poisoned because uh, they embalmed his body like in 24 hours after he died, which was actually against Italian law. But as we discussed earlier, the Vatican actually is a law unto itself, so they really couldn't do anything about it. But a lot of people think his death was very suspicious because they, they covered it up so quickly. Um, but his motto was, from the midst of the moon, in English translation. Hmm. Well, what's interesting, he was born in the diocese that is known as Belluno, which bell is a prefix meaning beautiful, and luno in Latin means moon. So he, he was born in the diocese called Beautiful Moon. But he ascended to the papacy. The day that he became pope was the precise day of a half moon. Um, so it, it corresponds quite neatly to this little phrase, from the midst of the moon. Uh, right. And then he, he really only lived a one lunar cycle <laughs> after that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Um, well, you know, it, it's, the thing that's interesting is that these these prophecies seem to kind of have some kind of order to them. It, it's hard to to figure out exactly. But the next one, you know, from the midst of the moon, the very next pope, John Paul II, who pr everyone probably remembers, he was the one that was on TV so much before Benedict XVI. It's called from the labor of the sun. 
de labor solis. Now, you know, you could translate that, the Latin, to pregnancy of the sun or maybe travails of the sun or perhaps eclipse of the sun. So from, from the labor of the sun, uh, well, he was born during a solar eclipse. Okay. So the thing that makes that even a little more weird is he was, he, when he was buried, it was the day of a solar eclipse. Oh yeah. I think I actually knew that. That's, uh, is also pretty fascinating. Another, you know, the burying during the solar eclipse, you know, could be coincidental or could not, right. um, in the ways of self, you know, fulfilling prophecy, but it's sort of in, in my opinion, um, you know, a self-fulfilled prophecy is still a prophecy fulfilled at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there's ones that are real obvious examples of self-fulfilling, like the Pope during World War II, uh, Pius Twelfth. Now, his motto was Angelic Shepherd, Pastor Angelicus. Okay, so, I mean, how would you even fulfill that anyway? Um, <laughs> You know, he would have to, maybe he was very angelic. I don't know. I don't think that he was necessarily one of the good guys because he signed a concordant with uh, Adolf Hitler and with Mussolini that seemed to really kind of authenticate those two uh, fascists in the eyes of Roman Catholics. Um, You know, whether he was complicit with their ideas or not is is another subject. But the fact that he signed an agreement with them, you know, if you're a German and you're a Roman Catholic and the Pope comes up there and, and signs a concordant, that's that would give you the idea that. That he had their approval. Um, whether you know they stood against him or not, that's a debatable item. But the fact that you know they signed these agreements, it, it's kind of giving them a rubber stamp in the eyes of their of their people. So I, I hold him responsible for that. Uh, no matter what Catholics might argue that he did to help the Jews or whatever, he did authenticate these uh, these horrible fascists. Right. Um, now his, you know, Pastor Angelicus, like I said, that's that's pretty pretty vague. Um, but he went and made a documentary film about himself and called yeah. it Pastor Angelicus. That was the name of the film. I mean, and so it's like it's obviously self fulfilling. Um, and right. obviously he took the prophecy of the Pope serious enough to name himself that. You know, some of the people that try to debunk this, especially some of the Jesuits and the Catholics that, that don't believe it, you have to ask yourself, you know, they, they put themselves under the authority of these popes and believe that, you know, they have infallible things to say. Well, it appears to me that they believe this prophecy. I mean, he wouldn't be, you know, titling a documentary about himself, you know, using the Malachi prophecy. Right. And that when he, by doing so, you know, he has kind of given it his uh, seal of approval, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one thing that I find uh, pretty fascinating about it is exactly what you're saying. There's, uh, you know, even Catholics who him and ha about it, but, you know, their uh, indisputable leader or leaders are the ones um, sort of holding fast and even, you know, manipulating things so they are you know the prophecy is fulfilled and um kind of shows an interesting dynamic in the in the catholic church it does you know and then our, our current pope pope benedict the 16th like i said you know out of this list of 112 predictions he's the next to the last one he's number 111 now his motto is glory of the olive now you know, a lot of the Catholics that believe this thing, and there are many that do. I mean, you get on the Internet, there's all kinds of Catholic message boards where they're trying to predict the next pope based on this thing. Right. And you know, a lot of them were expecting a, um, 
a candidate to arise from the Benedictine order, uh, the mon monastic order of the Benedictines, based okay. on Saint Benedict. Now, the reason why they were predicting that is because the uh, symbol of the Benedictine order is an olive branch. Hmm. So, uh -huh. glory. Of they were expecting a Benedictine. Well, when you know Cardinal Ratzinger, you know he was a German, and um, he was basically in the position of the Grand Inquisitor. They changed the name of the office, but it was basically his job was the same as the, the Grand Inquisitor from the Inquisition. Uh, he wasn't a Benedictine monk at all, and so it, it was kind of shocking to them. You know, at first when he won the papacy. But then, <laughs> you know, the, they, they get to pick their own name. Right. And he named Benedict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, wow. that's fascinating. That's definitely fascinating. Um, so he, made, he made it fulfilled, you know. And then, you know, some people think, you know, there's an author who is kind of a, I think he's a little out there. I think he thinks that of himself as a modern-day Nostradamus. His name's John Hogue, and he wrote a book about this prophecy in the year 2000 that was pretty popular. It's mm -hmm. really the last one before ours that, that talked about this thing. But he associates uh, glory with the olive, with the Olivet Discourse that you know Jesus delivers in Matthew 24, I uh, think, because it is you know the next pope before the end times. So he, he kind of made that connection based on the olive imagery. I don't know how valid that is, but I think we right. do see the... Um, the sort of the frequency of the birth pains that Jesus mentions in that Olivet Discourse uh, coming closer and closer together. You know, Jesus right. gave a, an analogy of, you know, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and false prophets and, and all these things that would, you know, that would be the birth pains. He just said these aren't, these aren't the end, but these are the, the signs of the end. And, you know, if that analogy of birth pains holds true, you know, the way that birth pains work is they come closer and closer together and then the water breaks, right? Right. Um, well, you know, I think that when I look out, I've kind of followed the news on the internet. It seems to me that they're coming closer and closer together. I, I yeah, really, exactly. the earthquakes that we see nowadays, I, I found it astounding um, that the, the level of them and then the, the, the number of them, it really does seem to be more than I've ever seen in my lifetime. Right. Well, you've been... Um you know, obviously studying this, uh, this prophecy for a long time and taking a look at it and really, um, you know, comparing it to what's actually happened. And I mean, is there, do you have any, uh, are you looking into the future at all with any sort of time frame or any sort of, um, certain event that you're looking for that might, uh, I mean, besides the, um, death of the current Pope, but, uh, is there anything that, uh, you can speak to, um, when this uh, next part of the prophecy might be taking place? Well, you know, in the investigation of this, I, I read a lot of books by different uh, Catholic scholars, um, you know, some who didn't believe it and some that did. Uh, one of the, the most interesting ones that did was a Jesuit priest by the name of Rene Thibault. Uh, he was a Belgian. He, he taught at a university in Belgium, the University of Namur, he wrote books on biblical studies and theology. He was, you know, a Jesuit uh, university professor, basically. But he emphatically believed in this prophecy. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier, he's the one that he thought that perhaps the original text of the prophecy began in the year 1571 and that, you know, the ones before that were the ones that had been altered based on Panvinius's book. And Panvinius's book ended in the year 1550-something, so... 
you know, whoever copied that book would not be able to copy it past that point. But uh, Tiba thought that from 1571 was the original text. Now, he um, did all kinds of uh, calculations, kind of mystical stuff, uh, associating Roman numerals with the Latin text and pulling out all kinds of calculations. And he calculated the year 2012 as the year the final pope would arrive from a, a whole bunch of different calculations. Um, hmm. and, you know, and the thing that's really compelling about that is that his book was copyrighted in print in the year 1951. So, you know, way before anybody's talking about the Mayan calendar or any of this 2012 stuff that we see in, in the popular press nowadays, this Jesuit predicted the end times based on the pontificate of this final pope in the year 2012, you know, demonstrably in print in 1951. Um, right. So, that really caught me by surprise. I, you know, I'd been publicly critical about a lot of the hysteria concerning 2012 and the Mayan calendar. You know, why would I want to believe the Mayans? You know, but I mean, here we have this guy. I can't see why he would, you know, manipulate it to be 2012, other than the fact he really believed it. Um, right. One of, one of the easiest ways that he did it. Um, I mean, I, some of them are they're just way too complex to try to explain. On. Um, on a microphone, but um, what I can do, like, he he took from 1571 to when he was writing, and he just uh, divided the number of years by the number of popes just to see what the average time in office a pope would be. Right. So the average papal reign, he calculated that to be 11 years when he was writing around 1950. Mm -hmm. So based on you know starting at 1571, then he just. Uh, he saw that on the list of the Malachi list, there would be 40 popes left. So then he took 11 years and multiplied it by 40 years. He got 440 years. Then if you add that, you know, if 1571 is the first year, you just started at 1572 with, and then add 440 years, it lands on 2012. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, that is, that's, yeah, that's fascinating, especially uh, compounded with, with all of the other uh, sort of numerical equations and things like that that people have come up with that have landed uh, this the same sort of thing happening on 2012. And what I find interesting... And which is coming out more and more uh, with a lot of these predictions about 2012 is that 2012 is more of the, uh, you know, transitional period into uh, what we can call, you know, the beginning of the end times or, or something of that nature. Just because, you know, the last pope, he's only going to be pope for, what, nine or ten days before it's 2013. Or you know, given uh, the December twenty first deadline of the Mayan calendar, um, so yeah, so, I, I mean, yeah. If I was the current Pope, Pope Benedict, I'd sort of be uh, sniffing my sandwiches a little bit more as the <laughs> as the year continues here. Well, I mean, there has been a public threat on his life that the church responded to this year. Um, there was also a lot of rumors on the Internet that he was going to retire in April when he turned 85. In fact, he's written in, in one of his books that uh, he thought that it was perfectly acceptable for a pope to retire if he didn't feel like he could uh, hold his duties down anymore. I mean, usually these guys die in office, but he uh, he's actually on record as writing that he thought that it should be acceptable for a pope to retire. So it's really interesting. Yeah, that's actually 
actually pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't worry, guys. I'll just step down. <laughs> don't have to do anything. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you this, because you had mentioned um, the average of 11 years or so per papacy. When we look at, you know, John Paul I, that, you know, he only lasted, what, a month, 30 days or so? How does that average out when you look at the prof- or the uh, the length of time each pope was in office? Does it kind of average out to about 11 years? Is that pretty accurate? I think that's the thing that's really interesting. You know, like I said, some of these things are testable. And, yeah, that's if you're trying to, you know, investigate this prophecy. And, and so I wanted to test this idea about 2012 that Rene Thibault had. Yeah, so he based that on extrapolating an 11-year reign out into the future. Well, he wrote that in 1950. Um, so there's been a few popes since then. So what I did was, you know, I— I added the new popes onto the list and um, and calculated it. And like you said, you know, what if uh, John Paul I had been pope? If he had a normal lifespan, a lot of these guys are pope for uh, 20 years. Right. Now, if he had been pope for 20 years, then this thing would be falsified. There's no way that we, we could land, you know, on number 112 because, you know, you'd have to have, you know, three or four popes like in a, in a really brief period. So it would never work out. In fact— you know, when I extrapolated it, um, if if Pope Benedict leaves office this year, it'll be nearly in a perfect eleven. Wow! And uh, I I I calculated their reigns, in, you know, with in days, so I would get one over three sixty five, you know, one three sixty fifth accuracy, and then I you know I use decimal numbers, and it it comes down to like hundredths hundredths of a decimal place. I mean, it's like eleven point oh three or something like that. So I mean, wow. it's literally. Uh, really amazingly accurate. If if he were to leave office this year, then Tebow's uh, calculation of an 11 year average would be a near perfect 11. Uh, it didn't have to be that way. Like you said, if right. uh, if uh, John Paul had been pope for a normal lifespan, it wouldn't have held. Um, but it is holding. Um, you know, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's gonna if it's gonna happen this year or not. But I mean, it it looks like it might. Like you said at the top of the show. We're seeing this big scandal, and you know it's just like in America when we have you know a political election. You have all these rumors and all this accusation and trying to discredit people. And uh, you know Tom and I picked one particular guy uh, just because of his name mainly and his position. But he's the second in charge at the Vatican, and his name is Cardinal Tarsicio Pierto Bertoni. So his middle name's Pierto, and he's from the, the, the diocese. He's from Romana, and he's the number two in charge at the Vatican. Yeah. Um, if, if something were to happen to Benedict, he's, he's in charge by default until they pick somebody. So he's literally Peter the Roman in a pretty obvious way. Um, but when you look at the Vatty Leak scandal that you were talking about, what the media is saying is it appears to be targeted to discredit him. So it looks like someone— Specifically— yeah, it looks like whoever leaked these documents, uh, the purposes were, you know, really to discredit him. And also, it looks like it's tr- they're trying to um, influence the the, uh, the next conclave in favor of a, an Italian. Uh, that's yeah. one of the expressed goals. If you read the articles, um, yeah, it says, that, you know, it looks like there's been some deck stacking going on where they just put a whole bunch of new Italian cardinals um, in in the conclave, so that these these are the guys that'll vote for the last pope, and so it looks like they're trying to fix the election in favor of an Italian, which is going to fit Peter the Roman really well. Um, so whether it's Bertoni or not, 
it looks like it's kind of a shoe in that it's going to be in Italian, which will um, you know make this another uh, way that this prophecy is probably fulfilled, being a Roman. Um, so it. it you know, the whole 2012 thing, it's so dubious the way the guy, it just he, it seems like he went to elaborate lengths to get 2012. But yet here we see events lining up where it looks like we very well could see a change in office this year. And so you're saying that the the um, Petros Romanus, this next pope, he's going to be the false prophet. Am I correct on that? Because I think some mm-hmm. people mistakenly believe that it's going to be the Antichrist. And, you know, there's a lot of focus on the Antichrist. But from a biblical uh, mandate or precedence, how does that fit into the the what we understand from the Bible as the false prophet? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we we are we are naming him as potentially the the biblical false prophet. And we base that on uh, you know a lot of people talk about the Antichrist, but in Revelation thirteen, if you start around verse eleven, it says, "I beheld another beast that came up out of the earth, and he had horns like a lamb, yet spake like a dragon, and he exercised the power of the first beast, and he caused the earth to worship the first beast." So right. it's talking about you know the false prophet guy that that points the world to worship the Antichrist. Now you look at the imagery. And, and here you talk horns like a lamb, yet yeah, speaks like a dragon. Uh, I think that you know horns are kind of a symbol of power, but lamb is a pretty transparent reference to the fact that he would be seen as a Christian leader. Yet right. speaking like a dragon means he's doing the bidding of Satan. So you know what you know who else is a better candidate for a world leader? Um, you know, already has all the you know the power and everything in place, other than a pope. I think. And then you look at um, Malachi Martin, a Jesuit scholar. He was advisor to two popes. Uh, he was released from his vows to, to write books to expose a war between the Jesuits and the papacy. He wrote in his book that there was a satanic enthronement ceremony um, where there's a, an order of, of heterodox Jesuits who are actually Satan worshipers who have been influencing the Vatican. He says that they did the satanic ritual uh, in parallel chapels, one in Charleston, South Carolina, and one in Rome, right. uh, 1963, with the express purpose of influencing the papacy to be an instrument of Satan. So here we have a Catholic scholar who's make, made these ac- accusations in more than one book. Uh, he died mysteriously in 2000. Uh, he fell down the stairs. He was working on a book uh, about how the Catholic Church had been um, taken over by the new world order basically uh, mm. to be their instrument. And, you know, I, I think that what he was talking about is falling in place. Um, so, I mean, it's not anti-Catholic for us to say that this final pope is the uh, false prophet. I mean, it's not just some kind of Protestant, Protestant prejudice. It's based on their own writings by their own scholars who, who are saying right. these things. I mean, and the Malachi prophecy says Rome is destroyed and judged. I mean, these are Catholic sources. So it's right. really not, just our idea it comes from their own writings right yeah no that's the fascinating part about it i recall uh tom horn talking about how he had hired a a private investigator to look into the death of malachi martin uh what what came out of that it wasn't malachi martin he hired a it was a a father coons okay someone associated with him who um who who was 
he was murdered and uh he tried to get the uh police records from that but um they initially said that they were going to give them to him and then they said they weren't so it, it kind of got covered up it looks like I, I don't know what's going on exactly with that situation but it, huh. it was a mysterious murder and it looks like he was killed in such a way that uh, involved ritual satanism oh boy wow if you want to read another really interesting book um about that a lot of people don't know about it's called um lucifer's lodge and it's really about the pedophile scandal and how it's really not uh, just aberrant sexual behavior that actually a lot of it is ritual satanism that is that is inf infiltrated into the, the the roman catholic system it's by william h kennedy it's right um if you email me i could probably help you find a copy of it it's kind of hard to get but um Send me an email and I'll I'll try to hook you up with where you can find a, a used copy. But uh, he yeah he he actually worked with Malachi Martin and uh, uh, William H Kennedy is his name. But he uh, he found some really astounding connections to uh, Satanism and uh, the priesthood. Yeah, no, that's fascinating because uh, as I understand it, pedophilia and and sodomism and and things like that are all related to. Uh, um, sort of, what is it like? Power, sort of life draining, like life energy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've read some stuff that uh, Alistair Crowley was doing that that he believed some of this was harnessing the the you know youth energy and things like that. To it's pretty disturbing stuff. I don't want to necessarily get into that, but uh, well, you know, this stuff is very fascinating, and I, and it's one of those topics that I think a lot of people are curious about, but it's really hard to parse through. So. We definitely appreciate you, you know, you and Tom doing this work because the whole idea of the Catholic Church and everything going on is is very, uh, it's thick. You know, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of different things going on. But you know, I, it's one of the weak points as far as for me because you know I, I haven't I haven't been a believer for too long and I've looked at a lot of stuff. But at the same time, um, the the Catholic Church I, I get asked about it quite a bit and, and I don't know exactly how to answer some of those questions, but I know you've done some work just to turn a little bit of the, uh, the direction of the conversation. Um, our, our actual show, we talk a lot about transhumanism on the show mm -hmm. and you had, you had mentioned how you wrote some stuff about it. And, um, so just to tap into that, that side of stuff, what was some of the most compelling things that you saw? You mentioned how there's some Christian leaders, uh, who are promoting the idea of transhumanism and, um, you know, what was their proof or what was their argument as far as, you know, having it be God's mandate? Because as far as I'm concerned, or at least my studies have shown that the whole transhumanist idea of us becoming gods is a direct reflection of, you know, a lot of the esoteric authors and, you know, the, the mystery religions and things like that, that have always, you know, that was their goal since the beginning, since the garden of ye shall be gods. And, you know, if you read Manly P. Hall and things like that, they all talk about, you know, perfection of humankind. That's the first step that we have to take and all this. So I feel like it plays into that side of things, but what, what were some of these Christian leaders saying and what was their argument? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I agree with, with your assessment of it. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of these guys, 
you know, you're talking about the occultists have had this dream and, and yeah, I concur with that. But a lot of the transhuman guys are, are more like naturalists. They're, they're atheists. Right. They don't even believe in the supernatural at all. So it's really their way of transcendence, you know, by science is, you know, is the way they see it. But, um, yeah, the people that I were addressing are actually theologians. Um, one is a prominent uh, Lutheran theologian. And uh, you have to understand where these guys are coming from. Uh, they're theologically liberal. And, you know, they don't really believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God anymore. So they think things like, you know, the, the first few chapters of Genesis are, are nothing more than mythology. And they've embraced uh, Darwinian evolution. So... That's kind of their framework. And so they're seeing um, that, you know, they're, they're buying into the whole evolutionary worldview. And so that's, that's their presupposition. So they think that, you know, God created us through this evolutionary process. And so the one fellow he, he, that I was really took to task the most, he thinks that it's our God-given mandate to be co-creators with God. And basically, it's in our hands now to, to foster the evolutionary process with technology. You know, so God made us co-creators with him. So now we can use genetic engineering and, and computer science and engineering to, uh, to, to, to continue to evolve and to become something more, you know, and he, so, you know, he, he doesn't, you know, he's missing out on a lot. So, but basically it's driven by, you know, the presuppositions of Darwinism and, uh, and a lack of, you know, respect for the biblical authority. Right. Well, what I found was fascinating with what you were just saying was, I mean, a lot of what they are saying could be misconstrued as, you know, some legitimate, uh, Christianity, you know, I mean, there's, I can think of maybe, you know, 10 verses right now that you could take out of context to support, um, that sort of worldview. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's why I, I'd addressed it, um, because it it is so uh, deceptive, I think. Um, it really usurps the role of God and, and puts it in the hands of man. It's a very man-centered theology. And if you look at the Bible, it, it talks about that we're dead in our sins and that we're incapable <laughs> uh, uh, of, of pleasing God on our own and that you know we're in a process of sanctification. Basically, by submitting our wills to the Lord and letting Him change us, you know, and in this sort of theology, it's where, you know, man is elevated and we elevate ourselves through our own work and our own ideas. It's a very um, man-centered and anthropomorphic uh, theology. It doesn't put God as the sovereign one in control of, of changing us or evolving us into spiritual beings. It puts it in our own hands, you know, which is basically, I think it does go right back to the same lie that was told in the garden that you already mentioned. Right. Now you had mentioned that, you know, these guys, you know, these guys are sort of preaching this concept and, and you already mentioned that they weren't, uh, you know, firm, uh, on the infallibility of the Bible, but are they, are they coming up with uh, scriptures to support themselves? Are they like, what's their Christian? I mean, besides the concepts that you mentioned, is there any sort of evidence that they are trying to um, give to, you know, any sort of congregation to I mean, give I, any, you know, I think that, 
if you want to, I mean, I would, I would just defer to my paper, and you can actually read the real specific arguments. But um, you know, the the basic idea is that they see that God created man as a co-creator, and so basically, you know, our way of honoring God now is to to do the best we can to create ourselves um, and to evolve and become, you know, higher, more intelligent, stronger. You know, all the things that the transhumanists believe. Now, some of these, the Lutherans that I mentioned, I mean, they they kind of try to. To, to temper it a little bit and they urge caution and, and they allow that people are sinful. I mean, but I think that these guys are, you know, they're, they're very theologically liberal. It's, you know, the same sort of denomination where you see they're, they're having homosexual pastors now. So, I mean, they're pretty given over to humanistic ideals. Um, and, you know, so it's a whole different brand of, of Christianity within theological liberalism. And, uh, you know, I don't think that it's authentic Christianity myself. I think that they've uh, driven so far off the road that they're off in a ditch somewhere. So, <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, that makes sense because it, it seems like the very concepts that they're working with are fundamentally um, unchristian in the way that most people, you know, think about Christianity. Yeah, it's humanism, basically. It, it really is. <laughs> I think I know, like, it sounds kind of like how uh, I know that a lot of Mormons are very in tune with the transhumanism thing as well, just because it plays right into their, their whole, you know, theology of basically evolving to gods. Well, I've had a long-standing debate with the leader of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. They have an organization. <laughs> um, if you go to my website, we there's all kinds of threads where uh, his name is Lincoln Cannon. He's the president. I mean, there is a Mormon. It's called the MTA, the Mormon Transhumanist Association. And yeah, he's written extensively on this. And uh, I've gone back and forth with him on well, no, number one, that Mormonism is not Christian, and, right. and number two, that uh, you know, transhumanism is not anything that is uh, advisable for anyone that, that's trying to, to elevate Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I think that if you do a search on my website for Mormon Transhumanist Association or, or Lincoln Cannon, you'll see all kinds of stuff, or I've gone back and forth with these guys. Um, yeah, they just completely have a, a, a just an aberrant theology. It's it, it's not anything that matches up to the New Testament at all. <laughs> yeah, do you think? Uh, what do you think the? You know, uh, do you think that they're going to achieve that? And and tying it back a little bit to some of the Catholic prophecies and stuff. How do, is there any tie in there? Is there anything that the the uh, Catholic Church or the papacy have said that? that reflect anything with the conversation of transhumanism or, I mean, is it just a completely separate, you know, category of stuff? That's an interesting, uh, interesting question. You know, I think and something that I'm probably going to be looking into now, Tom and I are going to follow up on this book. Um, but what our main focus is the Vatican ET question. Yeah. Uh, there have been several uh, Vatican theologians in recent days that have, you know, talked about baptizing extraterrestrials, even, right. and not uh, really what? strange. That, yeah, you haven't heard this, uh, Basil? No, I haven't heard of that. Oh. Yeah, there's prominent Vatican theologians that do this and that have said these things in public. And, and there's a book right now I've got it to read by a, a, a Vatican theologian about 
the belief in extraterrestrial life. I mean, they've come out and said that, you know, that it's acceptable for Catholics to believe in extraterrestrials. Um, and so there's a long history in the church of this debate. And, uh, you know, Michael Heiser's addressed it somewhat, and I'm studying some of his work and just studying the UFO phenomenon too. You know, there's a lot of Christians who think that this is the coming great deception with the alien question. It's very interesting that the Vatican's already endorsed a belief in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tom and I are wondering, you know, what, do they know something that we don't know yet? Or, you know, what are they up to? I mean, the Vatican has its own observatory. Right, have, right. That's what I was going to mention, that they have, yeah. they have one of the biggest ones in the world, right? Right. Yeah, they have one in Arizona called that. And I think Tom and I might actually go take a tour of that. But, um... So, yeah, we're, we're, we're working on that right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like if, if anybody would have uh, some infallible sort of belief or proof of aliens, it would be, you know, the United States government and the Vatican. Yeah. And well, so that totally makes sense. There's plenty of stuff on the Internet that claims that they do. But, it, you know, all that stuff is really questionable. It's really hard to parse. I mean, that's the problem when you do any kind of research in the UFO area is there's so much disinformation and nonsense that yeah. it's really hard to parse what is legitimate and what's not. Now, what I found is there's some really astoundingly legitimate cases of UFOs. It doesn't tell you what it is. I mean, it's not necessarily extraterrestrial. It's a good chance that, you know, it's some kind of secret government project that they're not telling us about. So, I mean, it's going to be an interesting uh, area. So we're working on that and we hope to maybe have that out within nine months or something like that. So um, hopefully I can come back on and talk to you guys about that. And, you know, I'm going to look into where it, it, it touches transhumanism you know tom's also obviously written books about that subject and that's something that uh we're tracking you know vatican ii really opened the door for the roman catholic church to be the one you know ecumenical uh leadership of of this end time religion we expect from bible prophecy that people will kind of fall into place into an apostate sort of christianity that embraces all the world faiths and if you look at the groundwork that was laid in 1963 at the same time that Malachi Martin said that ceremony happened. The Vatican II thing really opened it up. I mean, you have pictures of the Pope kissing the Koran, you know, all kinds of strange uh, things. Because, you know, the Catholics on one side are so doctrinally strict that you have to be a Catholic, yet with Vatican II you can be almost anything. It's, and it's really kind of incoherent how they're so strict on one hand and yet wide open on the other. But they're very pluralistic um, in, in, the, in their language in Vatican II. And so, you know, part of our book, I argue that, they, you know, they seem to be making a move on Jerusalem. Uh, in Bible prophecy, we expect a final temple to be built that where the Antichrist takes a seat and, you know, proclaims himself to be God. It looks like there are things that are falling in place to make that a reality. It's, you know, I don't, you see all this uh, political maneuvering going on in Jerusalem, but the Vatican is trying to get sovereignty over holy sites, Within the old city of Jerusalem, it looks like the uh, Israelis have probably granted them sight over the the Hall of the Last Supper. Uh, so it looks like they got their foot in the door. Um, and it's hard to know 
where that's going to lead, but it really does look like things are lining up for that final temple to get built and um, for all the world religions to fall under the leadership of perhaps this final Pope guy. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen, but it, it looks like it could happen. And if you, you follow the, the stories, it, 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 it seems more likely the every day that goes by. But um, so time will tell. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not I don't claim to be a prophet. And I don't I'm not claiming that I know that any of this is going to happen with any degree of certainty. But I do think there are compelling reasons to pay attention and that, you know, just kind of and to be in prayer and, uh, you know, to, to expect Jesus to come back at any moment. And that'll that'll actually uh, help you walk closer with him. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Thank you so much, Chris, for, for uh, coming on and talking about this stuff. It's, it's very deep. I recommend everybody to go get uh, Petros Romanos, The Final Pope is Here, the book, and also visit um, Chris's website, which is logosapologia.org. Can you spell that? So we, uh, L- it's a, go ahead. Yeah, L-O-G-O-S-A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A dot o-r-g and i pronounce it logos apologia and that's really just the word that where apologetics comes from the greek word apologia is just uh, it's it's just the word for where we get apologetics so logos would be the word or you know the you know jesus is the word in the beginning was the word and the word was god uh, so logos apologia that's where it comes from very cool and you know even if nothing happens in 2012 uh, this book is definitely a great resource. It's got over 700 footnotes, so, I mean, plenty to dig through. You know, some of the things that, that Tom and I have written about in this book are so controversial that we don't necessarily expect people to just take our word for it. So that's why we did use so many footnotes in the book. Uh, one thing that Tom Horn has done is that if you buy the book from the website, www.prophecyofthepopes.com, that we have made a data DVD, which includes a lot of the resources that we cite in the book, including that book by the Belgian Jesuit, Rene Thibault. Now, I put a scan of that book in French, but then a rough English translation is also provided on that data DVD. So if you order, you can only get that if you order it from Tom. So if you want the the data DVD with like over 20,000, thousand pages of material that uh that we quote extensively through the book then order it from www.prophecyofthepopes.com other than that you can also buy it at amazon or barnes and noble stores very fascinating stuff from chris putnam there thanks for coming on the show once again and uh again if anybody would like to visit his website or check out any of his work with tom horn as well you can check out logos apologia all the uh Links will be in the footnotes there. Uh, So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to check us out on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Also, we're on Twitter. Our handle is at canarycryradio. You can also email us at canarycryradio at gmail.com. Make sure to visit the website. Uh, canarycryradio.com and also look us up on YouTube like thank Revelations Radio Network and the Fringe uh, Radio Network for um, putting us up there and everybody once again make sure to tune in next week and thanks for tuning in Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. 
If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you could do so by visiting canarycryradio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, remember to think outside the cage. <laughs>